Welcome to another episode of Bowel Sounds, the Pediatric GI Podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPGAN. My name is Peter Liu. I'm a pediatric GI at Nationwide Children's Hospital, and I'm joined today by my actual favorite co-host, the one and only, yes, Dr. Finally. Jason Silverman. How's it going, Jason? I'm doing well, Peter. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Enjoying summer. Life is good. It is. It is. It's nice that it, you know, I'm in Edmonton. It's always nice when summer finally arrives. Uh, <laughs> the kids are out of school. They just finished school uh, last week as we're recording this. And I'm super jealous because do you know what they're doing? What? They are in bike camp. So they literally are on day three of spending the entire day riding their bikes. Like uh, where? Like how? So where are they going? It's an organization called Pedalheads. They run uh, bike camps and classes coast to coast in Canada. Oh, wow. And they do all different skill levels, anything from, you know, just graduating from training wheels, which is my youngest, yeah. um, right up to, you know, street navigation and safety to riding trails wow, and like okay. including jumps and, and the works. Yeah. It's just based out of a local community center. My wife drops them off in the morning with their bikes and off they go and they spend the whole day there. Wow. That is awesome. I mean, don't you I'm wish they jealous. had like, I mean, I'm sure they do have programs like that for adults, but you know, for those with jobs, it's kind of hard. I, it is. I, oh, man. I'm, I miss camp. I would, yeah. I would like to go to day camp again. Emma is, uh, she's got, I mean, she's 16 months now. So she got no time off. She's back to school year round. <laughs> <laughs> Daycare. Working. Um, working yeah. hard. Oh, yeah. She's working, learning how to like say a word. Yeah. I mean, she's saying That's words. That's good. Yeah. Maybe identify some animals. Yeah. Yeah. It's hilarious. Important life her. skills. Yeah. It's it's a good time. Summer's the best. All right. Yes, do we have any absolutely. Uh, announcements today? The first one, maybe off the top, will just remind people once again that this year's Single Topic Symposium, which will be the best single topic symposium ever. Oh, yes. Um, yes well, it will. that's in our not so biased opinion is, is on technology and uh, how technology can be used in our careers in pediatric GI. And there's going to be a lot of great events, including the baby shark tank and Peter dressing up as a shark and uh, doing the dance and (laughs) lip syncing to this song. Uh, It'll happen. We'll, we'll make it happen. This year's the 50th anniversary. It's in Orlando, Florida. So, so many good reasons to, to sign up and take part. Yep. And then I guess the second announcement is that for this episode or following this episode's release on the 21st of July, there's going to be another Peds GI chat on this topic of GERD. You don't want to miss that. Yeah. And the person, the guest for the Twitter chat is the one and only Dr. Rachel Rosen, our guest for this episode. So yes, awesome. bring any, I mean, and the topic GERD, I mean, come on, this is going to be an amazing Twitter chat, like bring your questions um, and she will be forced to answer them because it's in a public forum. If she doesn't, then it'll be embarrassing for her. And she's totally <laughs> fine to take on controversies and oh, challenges yeah. and things like that. I mean, she is the person to talk to about <clears throat> pediatric GERD. So, so that's what we did uh, for this episode. For those who don't know, Dr. Rosen is the director of the Aerodigestive Center at Boston Children's Hospital. 
She's a attending physician there in their division of gastroenterology, hepatology, nutrition. She's an associate professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. And she is the authority in air digestive issues and gastroesophageal reflux disease in children, in my opinion. I share that. Yeah. And Dr. Rosen is the best guest we could have to talk about GERD, especially talking about some of the controversies around diagnosis of GERD and, and around management of GERD, how not everything that looks like GERD or people think is GERD is GERD, and uh, maybe run through a little bit about the guidelines of management and rationale for trying different things. So it was a great conversation. I certainly learned a lot and, and hopefully our audience does too. Yes. I mean, she wrote the guidelines. It's like, come on, she's the person to ask. And we have so many like provocative questions that, you know, she does not shy away from uh, what she believes in. So it's an nope. excellent conversation. Can't wait for you guys to hear it. On to the show. On to the show. Dr. Rosen, thank you so much for joining us on the Bell Sounds podcast. As you know, we've been wanting to have you on the show for a long, long time. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. This is really fun. So our topic today, you know, we could talk about this for like 50 episodes and we have so many questions. We had to cut out so many things we wanted to ask you, but let's first start with our standard personal questions. So for our listeners who don't know you, how would you describe yourself in one sentence? I would probably say that I am a clinical researcher, a female scientist, and I am a myth buster, an equity advocate, an envelope pusher, and a mom of two boys. It's a good list. Myth buster. I love that. I'm trying to figure out which one you are. Maybe the one with the, the wears the funky <laughs> uh, hat or, or the, the one with the, the round glasses. One of the like, best myth busting things that I remember from one of your talks was, you know, when you have the slide up of like a pharyngeal erythema and how the ENT just sees that as reflux. My wife is an ENT. So after that oh, talk, yeah. I went straight to her like, would you say this is reflux? If you saw this picture, she's like, yeah, that's reflux. I'm like, no, it is not. Dr. <laughs> Rosen. And then anyways, I love that. And I wish we could talk about it today, but obviously there's so much to cover. And it may or may not have resulted in Peter sleeping on the couch for a week, but you know, <laughs> she does facial plastics you, now. She doesn't deal with that. You can't, you can't blame yourself for that one. Uh, but I took a picture of the slide. Yeah. I was like that guy taking pictures of slides and I was like, I got to text this. Oh, Leslie. Yeah. That was definitely up there on the myths that needed busting. So that was and a good one. Another question that we ask all of our guests, and this started in the pandemic when all of us were looking for other sources of entertainment. So we always are hitting each other up for recommendations. Can you tell us about a book, podcast, TV show, or movie that you've, that you've uh, gone through recently that you'd recommend? So you probably want an intellectual answer, but I'm not going to give you one of those. <laughs> Excellent. Um, right now I'm watching Life Below Zero um, on National Geographic. So um, I don't know if you guys have seen this, but it is a um, reality show that follows folks who live up in Alaska um, and how they survive the climate and um, the environment. And what I love about it is that the folks that they follow are, they have crazy grit. 
and they have amazing resilience and they can MacGyver anything and still find amazing happiness and joy. And and I think what really touches me about it is just how even when you're given lemons, you can make lemonade. And and I just think, you know, that we never know what we're going to get in this life. You know, we always have stumbling blocks and that's how we deal with it. And I think that show just embodies for me um, the ultimate resilience of people. So I, I like it. It's it's, um, it's a great watch if you have time. Life that's that's um, a good one. Yeah, that sounds really fitting for, you know, 20, what I'm calling 2020 X. That's yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Life is, that's kind of what I, how I think of uh, Jason living up in uh, Alberta. <laughs> we, we are, we are uh, very close in latitude to Alaska. It's, it's not that much further. I mean, it is, it is further north, but it, not, not by that much. Yeah. I'm always like, ah, oh, it's like 10 degrees today. I'm going to die. And then Jason's like, oh, it's like negative 40 or whatever this year. <laughs> but that's a good one. Life Below Zero, National Geographic. Yep. Awesome. So, um, okay. So, Ever since I was a GI fellow, I've always been super impressed by all of your work, you know, as a leader in like the motility world, aerodigestive, but really in pediatric GI as a whole. But how did you first develop your interest in, in reflux, gastroesophageal reflux disease, and also aerodigestive disorders more broadly? Yeah. So it, it's actually kind of a crazy story. So I did my residency in North Carolina and I remember this was, and this is going to date me, but this was before pH impedance studies. And this was back when every baby got a pneumogram and a pH probe for every apnea and every bradycardia episode. And I remember taking care of a patient during residency and, and I called the pediatrician to tell them about how we were managing the patient. And boy, did I get an ear about how I was mismanaging this patient. And the pediatrician said to me, you don't know what you're doing. This baby has non-acid reflux. And at the time I was like, what is this pediatrician talking about? Non-acid reflux. Like it's always acid, right? And then when I got to fellowship and the same things were happening with lots of babies getting pneumograms, we got to baby test the pH impedance probe. And at that point I said, uh-oh, this pediatrician was right. Non-acid reflux is a problem. Um, and that's how my interest in reflux started. But it was a little bit karma that what I was dealing with in residency came back um, in fellowship and was my primary project. So that's how my interest in reflux got started. I think the thing that makes me most excited about neurogastro and aerodigestive and reflux is that it just impacts so many kids. I think there are some folks that love taking care of very rare disorders. And I think I'm on the other end of that spectrum. I just really like taking care of kids with very common things. And as I mentioned, kind of busting the myths for things that we've been doing for a very long time to try to get some data to show if what we're doing is right or wrong. So I think the appeal for me is it's just the broad-reaching nature of neurogastro. Today, we're, we're going to focus on gastroesophageal reflux disease, or GERD. Um, and as most of our listeners, but not all, uh, will know, you led the publication of the NASPGAN and SBGAN guidelines on GERD in 2018. But let's start with the basics for the learners, uh, those who might not deal with GERD all the time. What are the definitions of GER and GERD? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's an evolving answer. So back when we did the guidelines in 2018, the definitions that we used were very similar to what the adults had used, which was GER, G-E-R, was 
the physiologic process when gastric contents enter into the esophagus, but don't cause any bothersome symptoms. In contrast, GERD is when the contents move into the esophagus, but do cause bothersome symptoms. But there's lots of issues with that definition in pediatrics. So what's bothersome? Bothersome to the patient? Bothersome to the parents? Bothersome to the caregivers? You know, how do we know when there's something in the esophagus if we're not measuring it? Um, And so I think there's lots of complexities to that diagnosis that have really changed a lot now that we have pH impedance studies and we can do better correlations with symptoms and reflux events. But, you know, at the time in 2018, the definitions were entirely symptom-based. And I think that that's really the take-home point at that point. Um, But I think we're learning so much more about esophageal physiology. I think, you know, I'm biased and, and Peter, you, you're a like-minded motility person, so you probably can understand this, but I think the most exciting things that have changed in our field are in esophageal technologies. And I think pH impedance was the start of that. But then after that, we had high resolution manometry that let us differentiate reflux from rumination. And now we have flip that lets us differentiate reflux regular reflux from poor clearance of reflux. I mean, sky's the limit on the technology. So I think looking back, that definition was great. But in the next 10 years, I think that definition is going to be significantly revised based on our new technologies. That's awesome. And I think as a plug, another reason to get into motility. Another reason. Yes. And so going back to the guidelines, so you differentiate, you know, that the approach to GERD for a baby is very different than that for an older child or adolescent. And so we kind of want to divide this up, this conversation up into first talking about infants and then talking about older children. So, I mean, we all see patients, uh, families who come in with their baby, maybe they're around two, three months old. They have the usual GERD symptoms, like maybe they spit up or vomit after feeding. They're irritable. They arch their back, but they're growing fine. There's no red flags. Oftentimes, you know, the family is so stressed out because they've not been sleeping at all. And I feel like I can relate to this. But how do you explain the diagnosis of GERD and how do you discuss that initial approach to treatment with the family? Yeah, I think that's a great point because, and and I would say that most of the infants that are coming to us as practitioners already have a diagnosis of GERD given by someone, be it the lactation consultant, the primary care doctor, um, the grandmother, the Facebook. I mean, there's so many ways that babies are getting diagnosed now with GERD. And I think a lot of it is undiagnosing or reframing um, when you have a baby who's having symptoms. So I think, you know, the first question that I typically will ask families of babies is when is the symptom occurring? And almost always it's during a meal or immediately after a meal. And I think that really lets you explain the process that what's coming up is milk, uh, either breast milk or formula. um, And that's really a non-acidic gastroesophageal reflux event. Um, When you frame it like that, it it sets the stage for the next invariable question, which is, no, you don't need meds or the answer to the question. No, you don't need meds because this is non-acidic and you can put all of the antacid you want in that baby and it's not going to make milk more alkaline than it is. And so I think explaining the timing of symptoms is really important. The other thing that's really changed the conversation, I think, with families is the growing data on proton pump inhibitor and H2 blocker or potential risks. So I think starting with the infection risk and the fracture risk, but now, as you guys know, more 
I think troublesome to us is potentially the allergic risk for the development of allergies, both food allergies, as well as other allergies in infants exposed to H2 blockers and PPIs. So I think now that we have that growing data, I think families are more willing to say, actually, maybe I don't want that medicine, particularly if it may cause harm and you're telling me it's not effective. And just to kind of reiterate um, that there are placebo-controlled trials of proton pump inhibitors in babies showing no benefit. So I think that combination of harm plus no benefit is really helpful to the dialogue. So I think, you know, that the conversation has really changed a lot with the being able to measure non-acid reflux, but also being able to show that the medicines that we used to use cause harm. So I think that's really the, the conversation that we're having these days in families with babies. That makes a lot of sense. And I, I always find that when you're having that initial conversation, you know, parents come in and they're stressed and often you'll see the families where the baby just spits up all the time, all the time, all the time. And the wondering about starting medication, they want it to stop. And I always try to redirect and say, well, what, what does the baby do when they spit out? Oh, nothing. Yeah. Like, well, that's not a medical problem. That's a laundry problem. Right. <laughs> it's so true. And I think the other thing that, um, well, I'm sure we'll talk about it, um, but our approach with precision medicine is really changing, right? You want to get the right diagnosis. And I think everybody can kind of get behind the fact that we want the right diagnosis. What if it's colic? What if it's cow's milk protein allergy? What if it's oropharyngeal dysphagia and aspiration? They all look exactly the same in babies. And I think, you know, trying to get to the truth is really um, an important concept for families as well. Speaking of treatment, we're going to come back to medications again, but Another strategy that's been proposed is around thickening feeds. So do you recommend thickening feeds for infants for GERD? And, and if you do, how do you recommend families thicken breast milk or formula? Yeah, that is such a good question. I think, again, when the new set of guidelines um, is going to have to address thickening much more than we've done in the past. Back in the original guidelines, we talked about adding a teaspoon of rice cereal per ounce of formula. And boy, did we not know about the complexities of thickening back then. Um, now we know, for example, that cereal won't thicken amino acid-based formulas. Um, so that doesn't work. We know that cereal doesn't thicken breast milk. So we've really had to expand our armamentarium of how we thicken in babies, um, which is really a practice change for us and hopefully will be addressed in the new guidelines. In formula that's not hypoallergenic, I still tend to use cereal, a teaspoon of rice cereal per ounce for reflux, but we often need to go thicker, especially if we think there's a swallowing discoordination component to things. We know based on manometry studies, the thicker you go, your swallow function tends to look better on manometry. So thickening not only is treating reflux, but swallowing dysfunction. If we're going to thicken breast milk or we're going to thicken an amino acid-based formula, we need to use commercial thickeners. So we need to use gel mix, which is the only one that's approved right now for use in infants. So that's the standard run of the milk thickening, but it's much more complex in many cases. If the baby's on, for example, an anti-reflux formula, you don't want to give an antacid because that will negate the thickening effects that is needed in, in the stomach. So I think there's lots of complexities that we need to know about thickening. And hopefully we'll get to tease out all of those details on the next version of the guidelines. Dr. Rosen, do you, do you use like the anti-reflux formulas in your kind of algorithm? 
Yeah. So I use them a lot. Um, and I think, again, this is just a, another practice shift to where we used to be. The anti-reflux formulas in general actually have a little bit of viscosity to them more than a standard formula. So sometimes it can help with swallowing dysfunction and with reflux without even adding any thickeners to it, which is why I like it. But the other advantage is it's great for kids with NG tubes. So if you need to give thickening, um, that's really your only option because any of the thickeners you would add would clog the NG. So it's really become our go-to now for kids who have spitting up who have nasogastric tubes. So really an important part of our armamentarium too. Yeah. And also we've, I think there's like some growing concern about arsenic levels and rice cereal. And so we've also... Not all of us, but many of us have been kind of shifting a little bit more towards trying an anti-reflux formula as well. Um, yeah, you bring up a really good point. I mean, I think there's so many studies that have to be done yeah. on thickening safety. And I think we use them a lot, but I hear you. You know, I think we need to look into more about the long-term consequences of arsenic. As you know, from the congressional report that came out, it's in everything. Yeah. It's in, in baby foods, it's in cereals, it's in in everything. So I think it'll be a really important next study to do for us as gastroenterologists. One other question about the uh, infant guidelines. Shortly after it came out, I uh, led like a journal club with our residency program. And I think the thing that the residents and also the other faculty were most surprised by was that a trial of a protein hydrosylate formula or maternal's cow's milk, maternal cow's milk elimination was recommended before trying any medications and specifically acid medications. And you kind of talked about that a little bit, but how would you explain that rationale for moving that trial up before trying a H2 receptor antagonist or a PPI? Yeah, I mean, this caused a lot of debate in our working group. Um, these, these formulas are really expensive and it can really be a hardship for families. So I hear you. And there was lots of discussion about it. The thing with a cow's milk protein allergy is the symptoms look just like reflux and those symptoms look just like aspiration and those symptoms look just like colic. Um, and so, you know, the question is, what do you prioritize as a first, second, third therapy? The reason cow's milk protein allergy and treatment for it was higher than acid suppression is because there's very good studies to show that it works. Mm -hmm. Unlike the acid suppression where there's no studies to show benefit, so um, our rationale for including it is one, you can't differentiate reflux from cow's milk protein allergy. Two, there's evidence that it improves symptoms. And now we have really nice data from Dr. Omari's group in Australia that even in kids without cow's milk protein allergy, when you eliminate cow's milk protein from their diet, their reflux symptoms get better, even when they don't have the cow's milk protein allergy. So I think we're even now having growing data to show there's benefit, even apart from just a cow's milk allergy treatment effect. And whether that's a gastric emptying effect or a microbiome effect, or we don't know, uh, but it does seem to have uh, benefit. So that's why it was prioritized over acid suppression because of the negative acid suppression trials. And one of the things that I, I think you really helpfully emphasize in the guideline, but I don't think is always followed as strictly in the community is that is a time limited trial, right. you know, two to four weeks, you'll either see a difference or you won't. Um, and un unfortunately, I think, I don't know if for, for you both, but I certainly see a lot of kids where they have been on extensively hydrolyzed formula for two months before coming to see us. and. We say, you know, so did it make a difference? No, 
like that's really unfortunate that they've persisted you know some of some of them even giving up breastfeeding to make the trial um and so really just emphasize it's time limited you either see a difference you don't keep doing something that isn't working and that's totally true for the medicines too i mean you'll Mm -hmm. see you know down farther down in the guidelines there's a lot of debate about what to do about acid suppression and there were those in the camp that say don't put any and there were some that say use a short trial and some said use a longer trial and i think jason your point is exactly right whatever you do just do it in a short time if it's not helping move on i totally agree with that and i think you know um that message has to be sold up front because it's hard to get follow-up appointments so what's happening as you rightly said is people will stay on these for months until they see you again and i think you know, I think instructions up front are key. You're so right. Yeah. I mean, I think in the beginning, emphasizing the natural history, like from that very first visit, it goes a long way because you're, you're explaining to them, like, we just have to get there a little bit further. I know it seems like it's going on forever, you know, but it's like, I think when there's like a end point, so, so to speak in their minds, it's a little bit easier to swallow. Like, okay, maybe we'll just give it another month, see how things go before we try this. Moving on a little bit from infants to older children and adolescents with GERD, uh, the algorithm's a little different, but again, sort of begins with lifestyle and dietary education. What's your usual counseling about this for a child or a teenager? Yeah, I think that's a, a an important point, although not very data driven. In full disclosure, and and I think um, we see this a lot in some of the functional uh, disorders as well, where we often do some dietary manipulation and things like that to see if things help. You know, the first thing I always ask is, do you notice any triggers for your reflux? And patients are pretty pretty honest. You know, fatty foods may make things worse. Spicy foods may make it worse. Tomato sauce may make it worse. But if there are no triggers, I'm really hesitant to limit the diet. You know, we see lots of um, kids now developing ARFID from restrictions, dietary restrictions that prescribers have recommended, where first you start eliminating dairy, then you start cutting out the gluten, then you start cutting out all of these things, and very quickly you can get into a lot of anxiety around eating. So for the purposes of gastroesophageal reflux, um, I think, you know, you ask for triggers, you see if they're there and you can pull them out if there is a trigger. But otherwise, I tend not to do a whole lot of dietary changes because I'm worried about subsequent anxiety. Other things we think about are positioning. We know from studies in infants, for example, that left lateral decubitus is a better position for reflux than uh, laying on the right side. Um because of babies you know, and the risk of SIDS, we can't recommend changes in positioning in babies per se, but the same rules apply in teenagers and adults, and adult studies have now confirmed what the pediatric data shows about uh, side positioning. We recommend a lot of upright positioning, not a lot of data to support that, but it seems to make sense. Very little harm in recommending keeping kids upright after eating and not laying down shortly after a meal. And I think the other thing that matters is sleep. So sleep hygiene is really important. We know that in the adult esophageal world, that uh, when you have impaired sleep, your pain perception is significantly altered with pain amplification, with poor sleep. So I think talking about sleep habits and and making sure that kids are sleeping the right number of hours and things like that are also really important. So I think you know, talking about diet, talking about positioning, talking about sleep are all really important from a lifestyle perspective. Can I just ask, you know, especially when we're talking about teenagers, 
a lot of our teams will be stopping at insert coffee chain name here and getting the large uh, sweet coffee based drinks and not really thinking about that that is caffeine, that that's coffee. So do you specifically zero in on caffeine intake and coffee? Yeah, coffee is a big one and it's very hard to break that habit. <laughs> I can tell you that. Um, I think you, the beauty of caffeine is that we have decaf options, right? And we have other options as a test to see if it makes a difference. And I think it's hard, right? Because it could be a volume thing where some kids are drinking huge volumes at any given time, which could be making reflux worse. It might be the caffeine and the impact on the lower esophageal sphincter. It could be the fat content, depending on what they're putting in it. Now, my goodness, you can put anything in these in these drinks to make them delicious. So it's really important to tease out what part of that trigger <laughs> may be waking things worse, be it the caffeine, the fat content, or the volume. Um, and sometimes it takes some experimenting to get at that. That's a really good point. Let's say the symptoms persist despite talking about lifestyle and diet. You know, so the recommendation is then to do a trial, like a limited trial of acid suppression, potentially followed by endoscopy if the child has persistent symptoms or is unable to wean or stop the PPI. Um, so if the endoscopy doesn't show another process like eosinophilic esophagitis, we talked to you mentioned briefly, pH impedance testing. So can you kind of go through maybe just briefly like what that is and how that guides your subsequent understanding of a child's symptoms and treatment? Yeah, I think I hate it, pH impedance studies. I've done them to myself. I've done them to Dr. Nurko, who I work with. This is what we do for fun in, in motility. Um, it's a hard test, so I, I get it, but it really does seem to change management. So um, to your point, Peter, you know, I think um, we are advocating for early testing. And I think it's with the new diagnoses of non-erosive reflux disease, reflux hypersensitivity, and functional heartburn that have really changed our practice. So uh, as you mentioned, do a very short trial of a proton pump inhibitor and you scope just to remind everybody based on the agree guidelines um, that really it's recommended if you can scope before starting acid suppression, that would be great because you don't want to mask any diagnoses. But let's suppose you scope the patient off of proton pump inhibitors, you have normal mucosa, you do your pH impedance probe. The reason to do it is to classify first, do they have abnormal amounts of acid, yes or no? If they have an abnormal amount of acid, then they get a diagnosis of non-erosive reflux disease, and those patients might benefit from acid suppression. If you do the pro, there's not an abnormal amount of acid reflux, but there is a positive symptom correlation. So when they have reflux, they feel it. Then that patient would have a diagnosis of reflux, reflux hypersensitivity, and they might benefit from a proton and pump inhibitor or they may benefit from a neuromodulator. If they have functional heartburn, which means no abnormal amount of reflux and a negative symptom correlation, so when they had pain, there was nothing going on in the esophagus, then those patients might benefit from a neuromodulator, but you don't want them on a proton pump inhibitor. So it really allows us, by doing that pH impedance study, to correlate symptoms and to measure the amount of acid going on. It allows us to give you a precise diagnosis and tailor the therapies appropriately. And the whole goal is really to limit exposure to all of these drugs. And I think that the pH impedance study will let us do that with greater precision than we've had in the past. So that's the value of doing early testing compared to later testing. It's like you mentioned in the beginning. It's like this definition was just 
at one point, oh, reflux, stuff's coming up and then it's bothersome to me. But there's so much more, like there's so many advanced tools we have now that can really quantify and see if that's actually the problem. Um, a random question though, what is your neuromodulator of choice for those with reflux hypersensitivity or functional heartburn? Yeah. So again, no data um, in the pediatric population. The data in adults suggests SSRIs or tricyclics may be beneficial. I I tend to use gabapentin just because I can fine tune the dose so much more easily than some of the other medications. And I don't tend to see any of the mood changes that sometimes I see with other neuromodulators. So I tend to like gabapentin. Uh, The added bonus to gabapentin is it also can treat chronic cough. So if you have those extra esophageal symptoms that you want to get rid of as well, I may get extra bang for my buck if I'm using gabapentin both to treat your reflux pain and your chronic cough. So awesome. I like it. I always like a win-win. Me too. <laughs> can I ask uh, more out of curiosity, for, and Peter, you can weigh in too. So we talked a lot about pH impedance studies in the context of these kids that are going on to endoscopy because they didn't respond to lifestyle interventions or a time-limited trial of PPI. What's your proportion of kids going to endoscopy who also get a pH impedance probe? Is it 100%? Is it 50%? Is it 10%? You know, roughly how many of these kids are getting that additional testing? So definitely in our practice, it's still relatively low because families don't want to do the probe. Um, And again, I get it. I get it. And so for us, it's still relatively low. We, we probably do, I would say, three pH impedance probes a week in our practice. I don't know, Peter and Jason, what are you guys seeing in your practices? Yeah, I think for us, we do a little bit fewer pH impedance studies than you guys do. And like you had said, it's a very, very small fraction who actually end up getting pH impedance studies. I would still say like probably the majority are going to be the medically complex uh, patient with a lot of comorbidities thinking about whether or not, you know, surgery is needed. The smaller proportion is is those who are otherwise healthy, trying to clarify what the actual cause of the uh, symptoms are, looking for symptom association. So I agree. It's like if it were, it's like, it's so so much helpful information. If there's a way it could be a little bit less cumbersome, you know, it'd be something that we would definitely use a lot more. But um, unfortunately, right now, it's still a small fraction. Yeah, I, we are similar. I'd say we do about one a week, maybe two a week. And it's the exactly the patients that, Peter, you you talked about, either the medically complex child or or the non-complex child where you're really trying to go after symptom association. We see people from a very wide catchment area. And so part of it is needing to stick around in town or come back to the hospital to drop off the monitor. Um, if you could set it up where... They had a you know app on their phone that was reading a sensor and they could just pull it out at home at the right time and dispose of it. I think we would have a higher uptake. Jason, I think you're on to something. I know. We've got a copyright file for a patent right now. <laughs> okay. We're, that's, that's staying out of the podcast yeah, until we're the three be- of us talk more about that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, th- I think the other point to add is that I-, I think in reality, a lot of patients, if they feel better on a PPI, we don't really hear from them. You know what I mean? Like we don't always have that set follow up that like, okay, if your symptoms are dependent on this PPI, we got to do some more testing to make sure you really need it. And I feel like a lot of times that may not 
actually happen if they're feeling fine and not giving you a call or maybe not following up. Yeah. And maybe that's the time where you try to push to go to an H2 blocker every year for your follow-up. Let's try to go lower. Let's try an H2 blocker. Let's see if we can get you down. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good point. All right. We finally have to touch on maybe the big one, fund application. (laughs) Oh, no. Not Uh, fund application. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, When uh, this could be its own topic uh, for another discussion, we might eventually go there. But if you could sort of briefly paint the picture of when do you feel that a fund application is indicated for a child with GERD? Who's the ideal candidate for a fund application in your mind? Yeah, I mean, you guys know I'm pretty anti-fund application, so but I'm going to have to answer this one. So, um you know, I, we know that with a fundoplication, you can get down to around 15 to 20 reflux episodes per 24-hour period. And we know that we get the exact same reflux control with GJs or postpyloric feeds, where we get down around the exact same number. We also know from studies, large database studies, that patients who get postpyloric feeds do just as well as patients who get fundoplication. So, I think the ideal candidate for a fundoplication is somebody who has responded symptomatically to postpyloric feeds. If patients do great with postpyloric feeds and they don't have lots of retching, then they may be a candidate for a fundoplication. But I would give the caveat that I think what we used to do, for example, is if a patient aspirates or has impaired airway clearance, we would jump right to fundoplication. You get a gastrostomy tube and a fundoplication. But now we have so many ways to measure, to manage gastroesophageal reflux. And I think when I think about, you know, the big technologies to our field being flip and high resolution manometry, feel changing. When I think about medical management, blenderized feeds have been a game changer for us. And I think our rates of fundoplication in kids with impaired airway protection have gone way down in large part because of the use of blenderized feeds where we can make them so thick that we're not seeing the reflux complications that we used to see. And then the other group of management changes is the use of GJs or post-pyloric feeds. So I think the blends and the GJs have really changed our threshold for recommending a fundo. Um, But I would say anybody who responds to a GJ, a fundo is an option. Anybody who can't manage a GJ because of the location where they live, uh, a fundoplication is an option. Anyone who has intussusceptions from GJs, fundoplication is an option. But really, our hope is now with all of our other management, plus our new motility drugs like Procalipride, um, we've just had much better success staying away from surgery. So that's who I would say for now. I think that's a good summary of what we can do instead, but also talk a little bit about just sort of how practice has changed over time. I know when uh, not long before I came to my present center, it was the first time that I heard the term G2Fundo as a procedure, as a single procedure, G2Fundo. And it was a routine practice. Uh, for a period of time here in sort of the, the older days. And that has really fallen out of favor. And it's the rare child who eventually gets the fund application. We are also a lung transplant center for cystic fibrosis. And the teaching in that population was almost automatic by default fund application to protect the graft. Uh, 
And thankfully that's gone by the wayside. So I think the practice shift in the last even five to 10 years has been significant. I think what people don't realize is that fundable condition is not one surgery and done. The failure rates are high for it over the long term. And I think, you know, you may see immediate symptom response, but then we're dealing with unwrapped nissens and they can unwrap in all of these different ways that cause mischief even five years down the road or longer. So I think, you know, you just have to be aware not only of the immediate risks, but the longer term risks if you're following these patients. As a uh, additional bonus question, okay. So you mentioned Pucalipride. I know I've heard you talk about it a lot, and yeah, I saw you guys recently published a paper, which is awesome about it. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? Like, so for the patient with these like upper GI symptoms that look like reflux, is there a role for that to try that uh, in your mind for those kinds of patients? I think what's the really hard part is we still have no upper tract indication for Pucalipride. So. Even though we have studies showing benefit in both adults and now in pediatrics, getting insurance coverage is near impossible here in the U.S., which is so frustrating. Um, It tends to be uh, probably our fourth or fifth thing to go to just because of the complexities and the cost of the medication at this point. But it works really well for kids who may have some delays in gastric emptying or some poor esophageal clearance that's contributing to their uh, persistent reflux symptoms. Um, And we're using it more and more. You know, it's it's the new souped-up version of cisapride. And, um, you know, it would be great if we could get some pediatric studies you know, uh, prospective studies, randomized trials of it, because we've seen such amazing results from it. But we just now have to convince everybody else that it's worthwhile and worth paying for. Yeah. I mean, we've had the unfortunate experience now of like, we try it in our inpatients and it, and it helps, but then we can't get it covered when they go home, which is, you know, even more frustrating than maybe even not, not having tried it in the beginning. Yeah. Hopefully, though, that can be sorted out eventually with more data, and uh, that'll be an exciting thing for all modalists to have a, another prokinetic to use. Stay, stay tuned. Yeah, yeah. And and I'll I'll maybe be the unpopular Canadian in the group where we have access to Don Peridone. Oh yeah. <laughs> I'm shaking my head. We have so much country jealousy. <laughs> I I that one still confuses me yeah i don't understand why that hasn't changed in decades and i'm sure it's because it's an old drug and so doing new studies on an old drug just doesn't make business sense but it seems like there's a lot of international data that could be used agree agree (laughs) so so we'll move on from that source yeah One thing that we were thinking of asking you is because you're a Mythbuster, do you mind listing or just talking through your favorite two or three favorite bird related myths? Yeah, I think number one for sure is it's not an acid problem in pediatrics. It's a non acid problem. So I think that would be one. I think um, the second thing that I would probably say would be the red airway, that red airways are not caused by gastroesophageal reflux. And the third one is that most coughing in young kids related to feeds is aspiration, not reflux. 
that brew episodes, uh, the brief resolved unexplained events are likely aspiration and not reflux. I think those are my most favorites so far. Oh man. That's like, I mean, that's like a full episode on its own, (laughs) which we may, we may have to do, but, uh, I love it. So, okay. As our time comes to a close, you know, we wanted to, um, ask some kind of more personal questions about your career especially with all the accomplishments that, that you've had so far, you know, looking back on your career, what do you think is the most valuable advice that you've received? And what advice do you have for, you know, more junior faculty, for trainees and our listeners? Yeah, I think, um, do you guys remember your first DDW that you ever went to? Yes. So I remember my first one and, and I remember going to these meetings and saying, like, I was in a tizzy, like, oh my God, I can't compete. How am I going to do this? Oh my God, these big names, everybody here in these rooms and all of this data just pouring out in these meetings. And my colleague, Sam Nurko would talk me off the ledge and he would say, listen, you got to just keep doing what you're doing. Keep plugging away and it's all going to work out. And he's right. It always works out. It doesn't matter what the adult gastroenterologists are doing. It doesn't matter who's getting different funding than you. It doesn't matter who got their paper out first, right? You just got to keep doing the work that you think is important and it'll work out. And I think I think it's really easy to get caught up in lots of the academic drama, but it always works out. So just keep plugging and keep, keep doing what you love um, is what I would say. And worry less about the swirling around you. I love it. I completely feel that same way. Even now, every single conference, it's like, oh man, they're doing so much stuff. I can't like, what, you know, what am I going to do? That's going to be novel. That's going to make an impact. And I think it's good to know that, you know, right. You just got to focus on your own thing, do your work. It'll work out. Yep. Yeah. No, that's great advice. Um, Dr. Rosen, this has been really great. As Peter said, we'll probably have to bring you back and do more <laughs> myth busting takedowns in the future. Maybe when there's more evidence around percalipride or or some of the new technologies coming out, or we're presenting our newly created remote home monitoring device. <laughs> um, but before you go, do you have any final words for our listeners? Yeah, I guess I would say just ask what makes you run to work and whatever makes you run to work, do that. Mm. Like other than like GI it. bleeds. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, fair yeah, point. Yeah, button batteries. <laughs> <laughs> Manual disimpact. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> oh, no, that's run away from work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but I love it. Things that you're passionate <laughs> about enough to run to work. Correct. Yeah. But once again, thank you so much for joining us. Hopefully we'll have you back on soon. Thanks for having me. Thanks. What an excellent conversation with Dr. Rosen. I mean, I, I honestly felt like uh, I learned so much during that conversation. She's just, you know, really the authority. Absolutely. She's fantastic. And everyone needs to... Um, be sure to jump on Twitter this Thursday, the 21st, and, and follow at Pete's GI Chat to check it out and take part, ask your questions, follow up any comments you have about today's episode, um, and Dr. Rosen would be happy to take your questions. Yep. And if you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at Sounds and on Facebook at at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. 
If you like what you heard and you want to support the podcast, it would really help us out if you did one or more of the following three things. One, tell somebody about the podcast. Two, leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others discover our podcast. And three, on our Buzzsprout page, there's a link to support the show by making a donation to the Naspigan Foundation. And you can also get there through www.naspigan.org. And the money you donate helps support some of the amazing things the Naspigan Foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research and public education programs. As always, the uh, discussion views and recommendations of the podcast are solar, something hosting guests are at Switching with Steel. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye, everybody. Mm-hmm.